My name is Dave Alm. I'm the uh, pastor of teaching, and my breath smells, so it's good that you guys are that far back here in the front row. That's very wise of you. Um, we are in a, a series this summer on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon given by the greatest person who's ever lived. And one of the things that impresses me so much is is that Jesus speaks so simply and yet so profoundly. And the people were amazed whenever he spoke. And it was so different than the rest of the religious culture that he just drew these large crowds. And, and then in the middle of his, of his speaking about life, he would hit people with something really profound and personal, and he does that today, as we're in Matthew uh, chapter 6. So... You can either type there or turn there, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll get started in a moment. But first of all, I need to um, let you know that maybe some of you did know this. Most of you probably don't know this, but Janice and I are amateur archaeologists. Did anybody know that? We didn't even know that of ourselves, but uh, we are amateur archaeologists. I know this because every spring, as, as we prepare our flower beds and our gardens, um, we seem to dig up these ancient relics of, of people who in times past lived on our little plot of, of dirt in Souderton. We've discovered arms and legs of Power Rangers. <laughs> we've discovered uh, rusted chassis of matchbox cars, and we even, we even found a slee stack mutilated by a rototiller. Now, does anybody know what a slee stack is? What show is that from? Land of the Lost, we found a four-inch slea stack living at some point in the past in our garden. We found Legos, we found Duplos, we found Connects left behind by tiny little engineers of past civilizations. And uh, uh, this year, actually not this year, a few years ago, we found this, this F-15 uh, without landing gear. It, they obviously rusted off and one of the wings took a lot of flack because it's almost torn off and all the edges are just, just tattered and frayed and bent. I don't remember a time when I told my kids, here's some toys, go find some dirt and play in it. I don't remember a time when I told them that, but apparently they did. They played in a lot of dirt. Um, but holding this in my hand, I realize there's two lessons that I've learned. Number one, things don't last. They don't last. They rust, they decay, they get mutilated by rototillers and stuff like that. And the second lesson is that fun doesn't last. If I handed this to one of my kids today, I, I don't think they would have a whole lot of fun with it. It's kind of like a new car. When you get that new car, man, it smells great, right? And you, and you park way far away in the, in the parking lot so nobody can get near it, and then there's that first scratch or that first tiny little dimple, and you're like, that's it, right? And you just start parking, you know, you know, right near the carts. It doesn't matter anymore, right? It doesn't matter. Things don't last, and even the enjoyment of things don't last. But sometimes we live like they do. We live like they're the most important things in our lives. We even treasure, treasure things that, that will decay and rust. And Jesus addresses that uh, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting verse 19. But before that, he's already told us that things... Uh, uh, don't last. He's already told us that there are treasures that we can have all the way into eternity. He talks about us having the opportunity to invest in, in, in things, in, in people 
where we'll be rewarded in eternity for. And I just want to just remind you some things he's already said in Matthew 5 and 6. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are these rewards, there are these treasures that come to those who follow Christ in this way. And, and just the other week, we, we learned that, that uh, when we give in secret, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when we pray to the God who is unseen, it, say, it says in verse uh, six of chapter six, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And even with our fasting, we don't display our fasting to everyone. We do it privately so that only our Father sees it. And it says in verse 18 to chapter 6, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There are rewards that will not pass away. And so now Jesus tells us that we have this great Father, like Christine told us, this great Father who rewards his children for their devotion and for their investment in eternal things. I, I personally would love to do a study someday, I've never done this, on what those rewards are. What are those rewards that he's gonna be distributing, that he distributes now and that he distributes in the kingdom? I think that'd be a fascinating study. Maybe you should do it too. But what are those rewards? You know why I need to do that study? Because we are so tied to the things of this earth. So sometime I'm going to do that. Maybe I'll share that with you. But for today, we need reminding that our treasures we can have treasures that we can store up for eternity and that we can enjoy forever. They don't pass when we pass. We need to be reminded of that today. In Matthew 5, 19 to 24, and it starts out like this. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, some of you, your translations might, instead of the word vermin, might translate it rust. And that seems like two totally different things, right? Vermin and rust. Well, the reason you see that is because the word is neither rust nor vermin. The word there is actually literally eating into something that consumes. And so some translate it as rust because they're thinking about gold and silver and, and, and things like that. Some uh, translate it as vermin because they're thinking about cloth and food and corn and things like that. But it's anything that eats away or consumes. It goes on, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The only Aramaic word that in the whole book of Matthew is right there, the word mammon. And what it means is money. Okay, It means money. You can't serve both God and money. And in this short passage here, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about two treasures, he talks about two sets of eyes, and he talks about two masters. Two treasures, 
two sets of eyes and two masters. And so we're gonna look at what he has to say to us here today. Let's just pray real quick and ask the Spirit to be leading us. Father God, thank you for preserving your word. Jesus, thank you for being the word. And Holy Spirit, in your ministry to us today, would you open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, open our schedules, open our checkbooks, open up our investment portfolios and help us to respond to the Spirit, to respond to you uh, this morning in whatever way you would lead, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So let's start with the two treasures. Jesus talks about two treasures when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying don't save anything. A lot of people will take this passage and say, you shouldn't have any money because Jesus says don't store up for yourselves anything on earth. That's not what he's saying at all. Proverbs 21 says the wise store up choice food and, and, and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Proverbs 21.5 says the, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So he's not saying throw all your money away or give all your money away. That's not what he's saying. He did say that to the rich man later on because money had a hold on him. So he said, go give it all away. Get rid of what's holding on to you. But he's not saying that here. Jesus is actually using a play on words uh, in, in his sermon because a more literal translation would be this. Don't treasure your earthly treasures. Don't treasure your earthly treasures. It's a play on words. See, um, when we translate don't store up, it's the exact same word family as the word treasures. It's just the verb form. So Jesus is actually saying don't treasure your earthly treasures. Don't hold on to them. Don't appraise them at a value that's higher than heavenly treasures. Don't treasure your earthly treasures, he says. And he gives two reasons. The first one's pretty obvious. Like my airplane, they just don't last. Why would you appraise these things so highly if they're not going to last? It's an obvious reason. Moth, rust, vermin, they destroy. Thieves break in and steal. But his second reason is less obvious, but way more profound and personal. Because he says, for where your treasure is, don't store up yourselves treasures on earth, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we're designed by God in such a way that, that our heart follows our treasures. Our heart follows what we value. We become what we value. And so if we value money, we become people that pursue money. We could, if we value career, then our lives become all about career. Everything else is secondary. We could uh, value attention or, or value ourselves, and it begins to change who we are. So Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a heart issue. It's not a dollar amount issue. It's a heart issue. Now understand, as Jesus here is specifically talking about money, understand that the Bible is not saying we're, we're not allowed to have stuff. It's not saying, you know, it's against stuff. What it's against is stuff having us and stuff taking over our hearts, shaping us and stealing away our heart for God. And so that's what Jesus is trying to, try, trying to impress here. 
Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't tell us what those treasures are. When he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he doesn't give us specifics. He doesn't give us specifics. However, he did just get done talking about giving, prayer, and fasting, right? So certainly that must have something to do with how we can invest for eternal dividends. We can give, we can pray, we can fast to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven as he taught us to pray. Certainly those are things that we can do where we have eternal dividends and eternal treasures. But he does say, he leaves the specifics to us, but he does say if our hearts are pointed in the right direction, then our treasures are gonna go in the right direction as well. And so two treasures, and then he talks about two sets of eyes. So um, it, it almost seems unrelated, but I promise you as we go along in our message today, you're gonna see how all of this is related to one another. But he talks about two sets of eyes. And whereas the first passage talks about how we are to invest, this next piece talks about how we are to see, how we are to see the life that's been given to us. Let me remind you, verse 22, you ready? Matthew 6, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the little light that you have, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I want you to imagine a small clay bowl, one that you can pretty much fit in the palm of your hand, uh, with, with a wick pinched into the edge of it. So it's just this little bowl with a little wick pinched into the edge of it. And if, if that lamp is a good lamp, if it's full of oil and has a, has a nice wick and you light it, you'll be able to see clearly. The room is full of light when you walk into it with a good lamp. But if the lamp has a wet wick or the oil is, is dirty, it's only going to flicker when you light it. It's a bad lamp. And so when you go in, the room's gonna be pretty dark. Well, that's certainly something that Jesus' hearers would completely understand. Very foreign to us because we walk in and we said, hey, Google, turn on the living room lights. Boom, they're on, all right? So the idea of a lamp and a wick doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I hope I, I related a little bit there for you what, they, what we're talking about. And what Jesus says, these, these two lamps are like two sets of eyes and the room which they light or they don't light is our body or our person, who we are. And what Jesus is saying is that how you perceive your life will affect all of you, your whole person, your whole body. It's really not talking about vision. He's talking perception. And so how you perceive life as you go about this world, how you perceive it is going to affect who you are. We tend to want to segment our lives and not think of ourselves as a whole person. So we segment our lives into work, church, family, finances, friends, retirement, and, and, and those areas don't necessarily affect one another. They're like they're in their own compartments. They're like Christ, uh, Christine's squirrel. Like we put them in all these little cages and then we can manage them, okay? That's the way we think about our lives many times. That's the way we perceive our lives in separate cages. But Jesus is saying, no. No, all of these things are who you are. It's your whole person and they affect one another. And how... How you view your life, how you perceive life will affect all of you, not just a little segment. 
And so the question is, how good are your eyes? Jesus said, if your eyes are good, if they're healthy, and the word can even mean generous, and that's why I see a few different translations there. Uh, they're, they're good, they're healthy, or, or generous, then your whole person, he says, is full of life. If you view this life you've been given in a healthy, generous, open way, Jesus says you become like a spotlight. You become like a big LED light bulb. And isn't that what he said in Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, when he said, you are the light of the world? A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's earlier in Matthew chapter 5. So if we have healthy, generous, open perception of our life, then we become a light. However, a person who is storing up treasures just for themselves, while they're here on earth, they have unhealthy eyes. They even use the word in some translation, translations, evil or stingy. So think squinty and stingy. That's a bad set of eyes. And if you perceive life that way, people who can't see past their, their, their deathbed, what they have, what they accumulate, well, it's just for them right now. It's mine. It's just for me. Those are stingy eyes, and Jesus calls that bad eyesight. And that person is living in darkness. You meet people with bad life sight every day. That's right, I just invented a new word. <laughs> life sight. You meet people, I do too, they're stingy, they're grumpy, they're penny pinchers, people who find something wrong with every situation. They can't seem to get on the optimistic side of the, of the, of the, of the, um, of the dial. Or there might be people that, that say, I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Jesus says they have bad life sight and they're really living in darkness. I thought, as I was reading this, I wonder about Jesus' eyes. What kind of eyes did he have? Certainly he had the good and the healthy and the generous open eyes, right? So I was reminded of a passage in Matthew chapter nine of Jesus' eyesight. And um, it's in Matthew nine, uh, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, this is his life sight, Jesus' set of eyes, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the way Jesus saw the crowds. Janice and I just got back um, from a, a little vacation in the Smoky Mountains. And we, we spent two long hours driving about two miles in Pigeon Forge. I don't know if you've been there before. But when we saw the crowds, we're like, we've got to get out of here. This is crazy. We spent the rest of the week pretty much alone in the mountains. So, but when Jesus saw the crowds, he saw them as harassed and helpless. And he said <clears throat> to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus saw harassed and helpless people. That's what he saw. And he had compassion on them. And I just took a real quick skim of my Bible here, just in the pages that were open to Matthew 9. And I see him working with the blind and the deaf, with a sick woman. I'm just reading the, 
the little titles. A paralytic, a demon-possessed man who told him to go away, and some disciples who were really, really kind of wimpy. And, and, and these, this, Jesus, these are his eyes. His eyes where I need to spend time with these people. So that's an example of somebody who has a good set of eyes. So how is your eyesight is the question. How do we correct bad life sight? Well, Jesus gives the answers in the next few verses. And here's where he ties this all together. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Dr. Ironside said, the love of one will always crowd out the love of the other. These two loves, love of God and love of stuff, cannot exist side by side. The love of God, love of money, cannot exist side by side. And notice, money isn't the problem. What does it say? It's the love of money. It's the love of money. You see, there were some groups that preceding Jesus and some that still exist today that take this principle to mean that, that uh, we must live a life completely free of money altogether, the monastic lifestyle, the hermit lifestyle. There's a group called the Gnostics, actually it's more of a movement, and their beliefs are still existent today. They went so far as to say that anything of earth, anything of matter is evil. Not just money, but anything of matter is evil. The only thing that is good is spiritual. And so salvation was getting out of this world of matter and getting into the spiritual. And that's not at all biblical. And they would proof text Jesus sometimes and takes his word completely out of context. But Jesus is just saying here that, that money has an incredibly powerful effect on us. And the love of money can produce envy, it can produce pride, uh, a false idea of, of sufficiency. The love of money can turn our eyes like downward instead of heavenward. When we're worried about our money, it can turn our eyes inward and away from God. This, this idea of money, it's such a powerful, powerful force. And Jesus strikes the death knell to this idea of money being powerful by saying, you need a new master. You need a new master. See, the fundamental question that Jesus is asking is not, are you invested in heavenly rewards? And the fundamental question is not, how is your life site? The fundamental question for today and really for every day is this, who is your master? Because how we invest depends on how we see, and how we see depends on who we serve. I'm going to say that again because that's the most important statement today. So if you're sleeping, wake up. This is it. This is the most important statement. How we invest depends on how we see, and how we see depends on who we serve. So the fundamental question is about our master. If Jesus is our master, our sight will be an eternity, and we will invest in, we will spend time, we will spend money, we will spend energy on those things that have eternal consequences. 
On the other hand, if, mast, if our master is money, our sight will be on, on earth. It will be restricted to the things here within the date of my birth and the date of my death. Those things are temporary. So again, the question is not primarily where are you investing or what is your perspective? The question is who is your master? Because it all flows from that. Do you get it? It all flows from that. Now, I know some of you have been saying this entire sermon, I know money isn't my master because I don't have any. So how in the world can money be my master if I don't have any? Remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a crowd that considered having two sets of clothes, upper middle class. If you have two sets of clothes, you're upper middle class. Anything beyond that, you're rich in Jesus' day. That's who he's talking to largely. So you don't have to have a lot of money to be mastered by it. It's not about the amount. It's about how it's affecting you. Let's, let, let's talk about us. Let's talk about the crowd in 2021. The United States has 3% of the children in the world, but 40% of the toys. If you make more than $30,000 a year as a family unit, you are in the top 1% by global standards. Wow. Maybe now we can see how important our eyesight is, how we perceive money. The average storage unit in the United States is the same size and made of the same material as the average home in a third world country. And it's a storage unit for stuff. In fact, in most cases, it's better than those homes. Now, I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty. That's not the point at all. I'm just saying we need to correct our life sight in regards to how we view our money. And Jesus' hearers needed it too. So Jesus reframes this whole, this, this all-important issue of, of money, having it, not having it, Having, uh, not having enough of it, who has too much of it. He reframes the whole thing and he clearly defines the problem not as an issue of amount or quantity. The issue is who's your master? Because if you can settle that issue, the rest will fall in line. Because how we invest depends on how we see and how we see depends on who's our master. So it starts with mastery. If Messiah Jesus is our master, our sight will be on eternity. And we will be looking for heaven-bound investments of our time and of our energy and of our money. We'll be looking for it if he's our master. And if our master is stuff, then we're going to be restricted in our sight to the things that are here on this earth, which really they're not here. They're already gone, right? They're gone because they pass when you pass. And I have, to, I have to say, as I've, my limited experience, and just looking at, at the people that, I, that I've known, friends that I've talked to, being 60 and a half years old, and being in ministry for a number of years, I've noticed that every other master, doesn't matter if it's money, if it's sex, happiness, whatever, every other master, all other masters, they lie and they betray us. They promise and they don't deliver. They just don't. Like my airplane, it doesn't last and it's not any fun anymore. 
Now, if we settle the master issue, he'll correct our life sight. <laughs> he'll do the correction of our eyes. So we see like he sees, and then we'll be able to look for and invest in eternal treasures. Our master will do that correction for us. Many Christians uh, know who William Tyndale was. Uh, when it was illegal to do so, he was the first to translate and distribute the Bible into English so that anyone who was English could read God's word. The church said it had to be in Latin. But Tyndale said, we can translate it in English and then everybody can read it. Why did he do it? Well, Tyndale said it best himself when he gave his reason for his work. He said, he wanted to cause a boy that drives the plow to know more scripture than the clergy of the day. <laughs> I love that line. I love that line. Because he knew that when people read God's word for themselves and they determine to follow Jesus without the middleman or the corrupt clergy or some ridiculous man-made rules, you can have an authentic relationship with this redeeming, resurrected Jesus and he transforms your life. So under penalty of death, he decided to translate the Bible into the language of his countrymen. And it was illegal back in those days. Only Latin was supposed to be used because the church of the time deemed the scriptures dangerous in the hands of the unlearned. William, Twin, uh, uh, William Tweedale uh, wanted to do this, but he knew he couldn't do it alone. It was way too expensive. And one of his financiers was a man you, that you probably have never heard of, but without him, you wouldn't be holding a Bible in any language other than Latin. You wouldn't be holding a Spanish Bible or a Russian Bible or an English Bible if it wasn't for this guy. And probably none of us know his name. His name is Humphrey Monmouth. He lived in the 16th century. He wasn't a famous theologian. He was a wealthy merchant who had made a fortune in the cloth business, and he had a fleet of ships. He was a believer. And when Tyndale embarked on his mission to translate the Bible into English for, for commoners, he needed more than just textbooks. He needed more than inspiration. He needed food. He needed clothing. He needed a place to stay. He needed protection from the law and the governing church. And so this wealthy businessman, Humphrey Monmouth, gave Tyndale a room, he gave him board and financial support, and Tyndale worked intensely for six straight months to translate the New Testament into English. That was just step one. Eventually, his Bibles were printed secretly, smuggled into England in the bundles of cloth that were the basis of, of Humphrey Monmouth's whole business and they came, in many, way, in many cases, on his own ships. All of this illegal. Here we have a poor scholar and a rich merchant who had the same master. The same life site, different investments, but they got the same eternal dividends. It's an amazing story. William Tyndale was tried on a charge of heresy in 1536 and was found to be guilty. He was condemned to be burned to death, but they strangled him while he was at the stake first, and then they burned his dead body. Monmouth spent a year imprisoned in the Tower of London, which completely ruined his business. Okay, bankrupt for Jesus. Tyndale martyred 
for Jesus. But I want you to imagine the boatloads of riches that were waiting for these two men when they reached glory. And they are riches that they will enjoy for all eternity. They are riches for which they will praise and worship their Savior for all eternity. We need to choose every day our master to be Jesus. Above everything else, above all our other worries. Oh, by the way, we're talking about worry next week. <laughs> above all, I, it's, I think it's interesting that Jesus talks about worry right after he talked about money. Isn't that interesting? Above all of our worries of the day, we need to choose that he's our master. Because if you choose him as your master the beginning of the day and throughout the day, everything else will fall into line. Won't be necessarily easy, but we know who our master is and he'll give us the eyes that we need to perceive our life like true disciples of Jesus. And he'll give us eyes to see the opportunities, whether they be small or large, to invest eternally and see those dividends when we see him. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we come to you and um, we confess that there are many times throughout the day when, when we take a hold of the wheel, you are no longer the one driving the bus. And you, you cease being our master. So Lord, we come to you first of all and confess that that is too often the way we walk through our days. Thank you that uh, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins even as you did those disciples who many times you said, where's your faith? And yet you stuck with them because you saved them and you sealed them. You've done the same with us. And so we confess our sin of, of taking hold of the wheel ourselves. And we want you to be our master this week. We want you to be our master this day. And for those that have, have a struggle, which is probably every single one of us, with where our money is going, where it's not coming from, and what we need. Lord, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see with eternal eyes. We would have healthy eyes, generous, open eyes, and see more than just our problems and our worries, but to see as you see. And then, Lord, show us those opportunities to invest in a person that is harassed, in a person that is helpless, in a person that is sick, and spend time with them, pray with them on the phone or with them. Lord, uh, whatever opportunity it is to invest in eternal treasures. God, and even, even with our money, with our cash, Lord, we open up our checkbooks and our portfolios and we say, how do you want us to invest eternally? To invest in treasures that will last. God, give us wisdom, give us your eyes as you become our master. In Jesus' name. Amen.